Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love and the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. Thank you, Kevin. If you hadn't had a chance to glance at the front of the bulletin, we've got several new things starting today. Uh, I'm starting a new series today on the book of 2 John. Um, I believe that all three of John's brief letters have a lot of value for us in a, in a turbulent time. I'll talk a little bit more about that, but we've got three new class options today, and in fact, we're kind of mixing some things up. So if you formally had a group whose class you normally attended, we've got a 49ers class in here with Buck. We've also got a Faith Builders class option and a Pathfinders class option. You can look at those uh, class titles and topics. I appreciate all Kevin's work in putting together some compelling options, a Bible classes have been great since we've been able to uh, relaunch them. But after we wrap up here this morning, we'd invite you to uh, seriously consider sticking around and uh, attending one of those. So uh, in AD 66, there's a group of Judean zealot rebels who got together, organized, and decided they needed to go and take back Jerusalem. And they succeeded. It had been under Roman rule, and so in 66 A.D., remember Jesus dies sometime around 33 A.D., right? So this is, you know, 30 30 years or so after the time that Jesus had been here. The church is still in its early years. But they decided to go and try to take back Jerusalem. Now, in doing so, they're actually doing the very thing they had wished the Messiah would have done. Uh, The people who are not Christians yet are still fixated on getting their land back, getting their property back. And so they go, and they actually successfully, for a time, drove the Romans out of Jerusalem. They established this sort of Judean rule over the city and were there defending it. Then, just a few years later, on April the 14th of A.D. 70, so just, you know, as of a few days ago, had an anniversary of the beginning of this event, but April the 14th of A.D. 70, the Romans came to take it back. The military, the Roman military, was led by a guy named Titus, who you may have heard of because he went on to become one of the emperors, but Titus is the one who was leading the siege of Jerusalem. It lasted in total about five months. One of the significant issues for the Judean zealots is that they had weak leadership, they were poorly trained soldiers, and they were poorly organized in general. One of the things that certainly must have helped tip things in the Romans' favor is that at a certain point in time, they decided to destroy all of their stock of food within the city. 
Now, we don't know exactly why they chose to do this. Maybe it's because they're just so absolutely convinced that God was going to intervene and do something big that they're trying to force God's hand to do some sort of a miracle on their behalf. You know, maybe that was it. Or maybe they were trying to pull one of those classic plays where, you know, you kind of burn the ships behind you where you got no choice but to fight and survive. Maybe they're trying to motivate their own soldiers that you're either going to, you know, victory or death, that sort of thing. But for whatever reason... They destroyed their food supply, and it's not too long after that that the city fell to the Romans. In August of that year, the Romans made it into the city. They very quickly sacked the southern uh, lower half of Jerusalem, and then they burned the temple to the ground. They burned the temple to the ground. They plundered it. By the 8th of September of that year, the conquest of the city was complete. Still today, if you go to Rome, Still today, standing in Rome is what's called the Arch of Titus. Remember, Titus led this victory. And on the inside part of that arch, you can actually see depicted as they're making off with items from the temple. He was acknowledging, memorializing his victory in retaking Jerusalem, destroying this city. So what does this mean for anyone who is of Jewish descent, talking about both the practicing Jews and those who might have even become Christian along the way. If this was part of your heritage, it meant the end of normal. There was no going back to what life had been like before, and even if it came, it was going to be a long time before anything went back to some semblance of what it had been before. Of course, in all of this, the church survived It had been the practice early on a lot of the times that you will see Paul, for example, in the book of Acts. He'd go into a city and speak in the synagogue and use that as a, you know, kind of a launching point to try and gather some people and convert them to Christianity. But the the movement of Christianity from the beginning was, was generally a house church movement. They were meeting in smaller settings, partially perhaps for convenience. You know, it's it's a couple of centuries before you see anything that resembles a church building. But there was also the issue of safety. Even today, you might see some people who like to use an ichthus fish either on their business or perhaps on the back of their vehicle. I always hope people are using those honestly. You know, sometimes I'm afraid people invoke the symbol just hoping I'll be a little nicer to them when they're ripping me off. But the ichthus fish comes from the Greek word for fish, ichthus, which makes a nice acronym for some of our core values. And so if you were to take the letters one at a time, to them it could symbolize Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. And one of the ways we understand that even by the second century, Christians were using this mark to kind of identify with each other. And so if you were talking to someone out and about, and they said a couple of things that made you wonder whether they might be a Christian, you might just take your toe, and in the sand, you would form half of a fish, and then just kind of keep talking. And if they walked over and took their foot and completed the symbol, you knew that you'd found another Christian. And so you'd kind of hurry off together and share your faith and talk about where Christians are meeting and maybe offer each other some encouragement. But during this time period, it was dangerous to be a Christian. There was a lot of threats. And looking at the context of this, you know, the book of 2 John is coming, we think, sometime around 80 AD. So, you know, about 10 years after the big nasty events in Jerusalem. So all of these situations are definitely weighing on John and the people that he's writing to. And looking at this as well, I don't know that I'd want to try to sort out, you know, would I rather have, um, you know, my home city religious center destroyed or would I rather go through a global pandemic? Personally, I'd prefer to choose option C, which is none of the above. 
So I'm not going to try to say apples to oranges, which of us is going through something more difficult. But I do think there's value for us in this letter because John is writing to people who have lost a sense of normalcy and are trying to figure out how to be the church in a new and different world. So one of the central issues in this letter that I want to spend some time on this morning is this issue of who it is you might welcome into your home. The specific issue for them was, what are we going to do about traveling preachers? Without centralized locations, it was very normal. And in fact, we see this through Paul's correspondences. It was very normal for a preacher to travel from this place to that place and maybe encourage Christians here for a while. Or maybe if you were working within one city, you couldn't see all the Christians all the time. So one week you're here with the group that meets at this person's house, and maybe another week you're at another person's house. But you had to kind of piece these things together. It was also the case that travel in the ancient world, even though it was possible because of the road systems, it was profoundly dangerous. Uh, Innkeepers were known for wanting to rip people off and take advantage of them. Inns had a reputation for being sort of flea-infested and disgusting, so you didn't really want to stay in an inn if you could avoid it. And so if you had someone who was a preacher come into town, a lot of times members of the congregation would want to host that person in their home. Uh, There was a great practice of hospitality in the ancient world, and this was highly preferable to staying in an inn. The problem is you had some people who were traveling around who really were not on the up and up. You had some people coming along who weren't trying to teach truth. They were trying to take an advantage of a situation that might could profit them in some way. So they'd come in posing as preachers, posing as teachers of truth, when in fact they were there to sow discord and mostly to benefit themselves. So that's kind of the loose situation that John is riding into. What are we going to do about traveling preachers who show up? There's some stuff he says in First and Second John about, you know, kind of testing people out and their motives. We'll look some more at that uh, as we work our way through this book. But the central question, whom should we welcome into our home? I was uh, looking earlier this week, I saw this quote from a friend of mine named Bob Turner. He preaches at the White Station Church of Christ uh, in Memphis, and I've heard many people who know and love Bob say he's kinda, he looks kind of like a bald Tom Hanks. He would laugh at that, but he's a, he's a good guy. But uh, I love this quote from Bob. He said, we are not a church of families. We are not a church for families. We are a family. I think he got that absolutely right. We're not just a church of families or for families. As a church, we are a family. This dynamic is huge in John's writing. As we start this letter, we see John refer to himself as an elder. It could be the formal title of a church leader as a shepherd or an elder or bishop, whatever you want to invoke. It could have been a formal title, or it could simply be John referring to the fact that he is now an older person. Uh, By around 80 AD, John would have been uh, well advanced in years. We know that he lived a long time and he was dearly loved uh, by the church. Um, One other thing we don't know about this letter is that based on the way he addresses the letter, it's not completely clear if he's writing just to a specific household or if he's writing to a congregation. He he writes to the uh, chosen lady and her children. Is he referring to a family? Or I would say more likely he's referring to a congregation as the lady and the people who are members of that body as her children. Uh, The church is often referred to in feminine form. So 
Whether he's talking to the congregation or to a specific family, I would contend that it is always appropriate that when we're talking about church, we really are talking about family. So whichever of those it actually was, it's sort of fitting either way. So we've got this issue of unwanted guests. When I think of the quintessential unwanted guest, I don't know who you think of, but Cousin Eddie, Christmas vacation, pretty high on my list, right? Just the guy who, who manages to do everything in a really annoying fashion. It's also interesting, you know, what's the difference between comedy and tragedy? When you think about comedy and tragedy, they often involve the same kinds of things happening. The real issue is, how close am I to that situation? So because Cousin Eddie's not at my house, I think he's hysterical. If Cousin Eddie showed up at my Christmas, I would see no humor in him whatsoever. Right? That's how that works. So distance gives us the ability to laugh at things. Even with our own tragedy, after it's been a decade or so, I can laugh at how foolish I was or how terrible that was. But when you're in the middle of it, things aren't so funny. But in these days where we're not distanced from a hard situation, we're in the middle of a hard situation, I want to urge us to think about what it is that we welcome into our houses and into our families. And as I get started, I want to talk about three specific guests that I would say are unwanted guests. These are some things that you don't want to welcome into your house. The first of these I would call catastrophizing. You don't want to allow catastrophizing to be a big part of your thinking process. What does this look like? It means you spend lots and lots of your energy sitting around thinking about how bad things are going. And you just dwell on it and you get into this sort of a negative downward spiral where you're always trying to think of a worse and a worse and a worse and a worse possible outcome. You just kind of stay in your head and you get just lost in the spiral. So what does that look like? You might say, for example, well, you know, this COVID thing's been terrible and I'm really worried that my dad might get sick. Dad's getting a little older in years and what's going to happen if dad gets sick? If dad gets sick, I'm probably going to have to take care of him. And if I'm going to be able to take care of dad, that means I'm going to have to ask for some kind of a leave of absence at the office. And if I ask for this leave of absence, they're probably not that happy with me anyways, and I'm probably going to get fired. And if I get fired, then we're not going to have any money, and we're going to end up homeless. We're going to be miserable and homeless and starving. And you say, well, wait a second. You know, where's the connection between maybe dad will get sick with suddenly I'm thinking about homelessness? But that's the way that kind of thinking works. And maybe you're not always that extreme, but a lot of us get caught up in this thinking trap of this downward spiral. Physically, that does terrible things to you. Stress activates your body just as if you're responding to a threat because your physical body doesn't know the difference between whether someone just insulted you or you're running away from some sort of a predator. Either way, all the same thing starts happening with your body releasing adrenaline because of those negative thoughts and you're just exhausted all the time because your body's working in overdrive because of your thinking patterns. These catastrophic thoughts, not good for any of us, not productive. I want to encourage you not to welcome them into your home. Another guest we have to be very weary of is the guest of bitterness. Bitterness is when you just have made up your mind, you're only going to focus on and hang on to everything that's wrong. Now, now sometimes that's because of a thing that someone's actually done to you. Maybe someone really has wronged you, and you don't want to forgive, and you don't want to and you want to continue to feel very justified in your frustration and, and, and your complex, and so you hang on to the thing that someone did. Another problem with bitterness is that we might also get fixated 
on all the things that people are not doing that we think they ought to do. And so if you're feeling isolated and you're already unhappy and you let bitterness come into your home, you're real inclined just to kind of sit around and think about all the things people aren't doing for you right now and how mad that makes you. It's a terrible headspace to get into. One of the things I've seen happen when a person really gets consumed with bitterness, you start to not even give credit to the good things that happen in your life because you're so fixated on the bad. So I've known people, unfortunately, who would have this one thing they got fixated on, and it's, I just really wish someone would do this thing. And then someone comes along, and they do that thing. And you know what the new complaint is? Well, they only ever did it one time. We fixate on these negative things, and if you let bitterness be the thing that drives your thought processes, you're going to make yourself miserable, and you're also going to make people not really want to do those things you wish they would do. Bitterness is a terrible house guest. Stay away from bitterness. Beyond this, sometimes we might let our temper move us into a place of all-out rage. You've all heard the quote, if your only tool is a hammer, then everything starts looking like a nail, doesn't it? If I just let anger come to rule in my life, everything starts to make me angry. And I, would, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I would bet all of us have had some struggles during this pandemic with, I just don't have the patience I feel like I normally would. I don't have, my fuse just isn't as long as it used to be these days. I'm a lot more inclined to think, well, that person's really got it coming. It's easy to let anger come to rule. You know what James says about anger? He says, man's anger doesn't accomplish God's righteousness. When I'm living and acting out of a place of anger, I might feel justified for myself, but I'm probably not doing anything worthwhile for the kingdom. Now, what's the other thing of this we got to be thinking about? Um, on the one hand, I want to be patient with people because I know all of us right now are stretched so thin, and I might be normally inclined to say, well, they're having a rough time because they've been living through a pandemic, and when they said that really harsh thing, I just need to roll with it. But what's the problem? I'm also living in a pandemic, and I'm just as easily triggered as they are. I mean, we've watched the level of, of correspondence and back and forth in our nation and social media. You know, everybody's worn so thin. It's hard to be in a healthy enough place to give people that extra slack that they need. We don't want to have hearts of war. A heart of war is always looking for another fight, always looking for another battle. That's not something that we want to welcome in our home. Rage is a terrible house guest. John begins his letter and says, the elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Speaking into a difficult circumstance, John decides to begin with truth. Something that's helpful to me, when I like to think about God, a lot of times I, in my head, I like to invoke an image of a really large mountain. You know, like a mountain so big that no matter which angle you're looking at, there's some part of it that you just can't see because it's bigger than you. But if God is like the mountain, around a mountain you see a lot of different things. There's a lot of different kinds of weather, aren't there? Sometimes around a mountain there's beautiful scenic weather. Other times around the mountain things are gloomy and stormy. Sometimes we go through warm seasons, hot and dry, miserable seasons, cold and wet seasons, but in all of these things, the mountain is still there. Everything else is just the weather. 
in talking about the truth, he's talking about the mountain. Because of who God is and how God is and what God has done for us, God is the stable thing, and where everything else is swirling and and twirling out of control, God is the thing that is stable for us. He places such an emphasis here on truth and the truth because we need something that we can hang on to while everything else is spinning. And so as we do this, he's going to go on to say a little more about house guests as we get through this letter, but I wanted to fixate in the first three verses. He actually mentions three guests that I think should be very welcome in your life, counter to these others that we were talking about. The first of these, I would really encourage you in your life right now to welcome grace rather than catastrophizing. There's a close connection between the word for grace and the word for gift. We can talk about grace at a lot of different angles, but one of the things that's wonderful about grace and the gifts that God has graciously given to each of us is that there is a place for me in the life of the church to make a positive difference. That's true for all of us, that because of God's grace, because God has gifted us in his grace, there is some place that I can do something positive. The real problem with this catastrophic thinking is where you exhaust yourself, burning all your energy with all the stuff that you're so upset about and theorizing that isn't even going to happen, when in fact God has given you some real things that you can do, that can make a difference. So let's stop focusing on all the bad that might happen and wasting our energy on that, and instead let's use this energy and the talents that we have for the good things that really can happen. I can do positive things. Grace is a wonderful companion. Acknowledging that I have received grace and that therefore I'm invited into the life of God and that God can be glorified even in a difficult time. We might even have to let that grace fuel our creativity. Now that I've got these limits placed on me, I might have to find a new and creative way to show love for others. Use it as an opportunity. Welcome grace into your house. He also says that mercy is a wonderful companion. What is the fundamental thing you hope to experience from God on the day that you stand before God? It isn't justice, I'll tell you that. We don't want justice from God. We want mercy from God. And the good news is that in Christ, we receive mercy. Therefore, it's incumbent on each of us to try and show mercy to each other. Rather than being bitter and hanging on to everything that frustrates me, I am anxious to let go of those things and to look for the best in people around me. Rather than seeing people just in terms of how they've disappointed me, I need to see them in terms of the potential that they have in Christ, and I should nourish that and encourage that any way that I can. I do want to say one positive thing that I've appreciated just this week. Um, Last Monday, I sent out a survey by email as we're starting to try and talk about You know, whatever it's going to look like eventually as we get to transition out of this pandemic mode, we don't know exactly what that needs to look like, but it does have to look like something, right? And so we sent out a survey, and as I would have expected, I can tell you opinions are from this range to this range, right? Everybody's got all kinds of different thoughts and ideas about what we should or shouldn't do and how we're feeling about it. But one thing that I saw is a strong theme throughout your responses. I really appreciated this. We gave you all that blank comment section at the end where you could say anything you wanted to say to us. 
I don't know that I could put a number. It'd take me a while to sit and count. So many of you used that space to offer encouragement where you said, I know how difficult this decision must be. Thank you so much to the elders and leaders for doing your best to help us through this. Thank you for including us. Thank you for trying to communicate with us. And I tell you, like, we're all as stressed as you are. It really meant a lot to get so much encouragement from our congregation. And again, I was just really blown away how y'all managed to be so positive in the middle of what is a, a difficult set of questions to wrestle with. So... We thank you for that. We are still thinking, processing, haven't decided anything, but mercy. I feel like this week we received from mer some mercy from our congregation. I hope you will continue to practice that. Keep mercy as a close companion. And with all of this, we should welcome peace into our lives. Isn't it fitting that every letter Paul writes, he wishes grace and peace to the people he's writing to? The biblical idea of peace is not merely a ceasefire. Peace is not just, I'll refrain from hitting you just long enough to say that we're not actively at war. Peace means that everything is as it should be. Beyond us offering grace in the form of the gifts that we've been given, trying to use our gifts for God, beyond mercy of me giving you the benefit of the doubt and, and forgiving you when I feel frustrated, or you forgiving me when you feel frustrated. Peace goes that extra step and says, I want to see everything in your life be as it should be. It's this sense of overwhelming wholeness, wellness, that things are as they should be. And that's a wonderful thing for us to be wishing for each other. Uh, the third verse in 2 John, he does something that's really unique among the letters we have in the New Testament. There are many places where Paul might would give something as a wish or a prayer. I wish you this. I pray this for you. John gives us instead a guarantee. This is something you don't see elsewhere. And I think speaking into a difficult time, it is a welcome message where he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. We cling to the truth. We base our lives on that of truth that we can stand on. We let love characterize us. And he says these three things, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. What are we receiving from God? We've received grace. We receive mercy. We receive peace. It's not a wish or a prayer. It is a guarantee of what we have in Christ. He says we ought to let them in. I wanted to take just a moment and speak uh, kind of pragmatically. So I mentioned some different thought traps that we can kind of deal with. I want to suggest one thing you might could practice. If as I'm talking about this stuff today, I'm hitting a little too close to home, uh, this is just something you might could try that might help you get out of this uh, thought trap. So what you want to do is you want to get you a sheet of paper, and the first thing you want to do is to actually name the problem, name this negative thought. You know, sometimes when Jesus was having to drive out an evil presence, he would first ask what its name was. So rather than just dealing with general negativity, try to be specific about thing that keeps sending you into a tailspin and, and put a name on it. This is the thought that I need to battle with. This is the thought that I need to deal with. And then you're going to write down these three things. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to go ahead and write down your worst case scenario. Like let's say this just goes as badly as I'm worried it might, just write it all out. This is what that might look like if this terrible thing goes as badly as I'm afraid it can. Then you're going to go the opposite direction and come up with a mega happy ending. What if there's a best case scenario 
where this thing goes even better than I could have imagined it? What does a best-case scenario look like in this situation? And then beyond those two, the third thing you want to write down is, what is a probable scenario? So if those are both kind of on the fringes of what could happen, what do I think is really likely to happen if I kind of calm myself down and just think about this? Give yourself a probable scenario. The final step would be for each of those things, you go back and you make a specific strategy of what your action will be. So if it goes as badly as it possibly could, this is what I'm going to do. If it goes even better than I thought it would, this is what I'm going to do. If it goes about the way I think it is, this is my course of action. You write that down and you think through it, and the next time the guest shows up and knocks on your door, you get that out and remind yourself, I'm not going to worry about this right now. I've got better uses of my energy, and I already thought through this. I've got a battle plan. I've got a strategy. I wanted to look with you at, uh, I wanted to look with you at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And thinking about trying to implement this, this strategy of keeping those negative guests out, welcoming some more positive things, I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 13 and the wonderful ties that it has to this letter we're looking at uh, in 2 John. This is a verse I read often at weddings, and you know, it's, it's a collection of verses that I think you could read it every day and it would never seem inappropriate or poor advice. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it, is, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And he says, love never fails. And I would say, because love never fails, love remains our best strategy. If you don't know what else to do, if you aren't sure what to do, try to figure out what love would look like in your circumstance. Do that, and you're probably going to end up in a pretty good place. We have to lean into love. Get outside our heads. Try to remember who God is and what God has done for us in Christ Use our energy to practice love, both for ourselves and for the people around us. Asking, where could I show a little more mercy? Where could I offer a little more encouragement? Because I bet that person is struggling at least as much as I'm struggling. Whatever your needs are this morning, maybe there is someone here this morning that we could take some time to pray with you and for you. We'd love to encourage you if that's something that you have need of. Uh, maybe you've never become a Christian. You want to name Jesus as your Lord, and you want to experience this grace that's found in Christ through repentance and baptism, rising out of the water as a, as a new person with the help that God provides you. Uh, whatever your needs are, this is a time we set aside where if you'd like to come front and respond, we would invite you to do that. Uh, you can do that now as together we stand and sing this song.